Welcome to Headlines. This is Ari Wasserman sitting in for David Lichtenstein. Today we have a very important topic. We'll be discussing how to raise unspoiled children in a spoiled generation. We'll be covering the following questions and many more. How much should parents do for their children? What is a parent's financial obligation in raising their children? Is there a maximum? Is there a minimum? And what causes a child to be spoiled? We'll also be talking about if parents need to treat all of their own children children the same when buying them items? And also, what are the implications of having a spoiled child when that child grows up? We will be having a number of esteemed guests joining us today. We will start out with Rabbi Arye Leibowitz, who is the Mora de Asra Beis HaKnesses of North Woodmere. He's also the director of Smichat Reitz. He has come in contact and taught thousands, if not tens of thousands of students and campers at camp, and he will have a lot to share with from his experiences. Then we will speak with Dr. David Palkovitz, who is one of our generation's leading outstanding psychologists. And then Mrs. Ellie Chevalis will join us. She is an esteemed licensed psychotherapist. She deals with family and marriage therapy, and she also treats individuals, couples, and families as well. And then we will speak with a 12-year-old. We are calling her Leah. The name has been changed to protect the innocent. She'll be speaking with us about her experiences with her peers, some spoiled and some unspoiled. And then we will have, at the end of the show, Rabbi Beryl Wine getting his unbelievable insights into our topic. And at the way end of the show, we'll have a recap, including lessons learned and hopefully some takeaways we can incorporate into our lives. Before uh, starting a Dvar Torah, an introductory Dvar Torah to our topic, I do want to mention that this is the first topic that I have given since the war began that is not war-related, and it is not because my mind is not on the war. It is 100% on the war, and it should be on all of our minds to continue davening and to continue learning on behalf of the soldiers who are on the front lines, on behalf of the captives who are still in the terrible captivity, and all of our learning and davening should be lame as well for all of those who are injured. In fact, this show was recorded in advance of the war. We were supposed to play it when the war hit, and according we delayed it until today, and it's an important conversation to have at all times. As an introduction to our topic, one of my most favorite, favorite Divrei Torah, I think I said it once a few years back, it's on Parsha Struma, Vayaka, Baaloscha, and it's going to recount what the Reisha Rav points out. The Reisha Rav was Rav Aaron Lewin, he was the Rav of Reisha, and also the president of the Agudas Harabanim of Poland, and he points out that there are three Kalim that were in the Mishkan that were made b'miksha achas, which means hammered out from one piece of expensive metal. What are those three? So he says as follows: Number one, the menorah; number two, the kruvim; and number three, the chatzotros. And he asks two questions. He focuses on two questions. Number one: What is the concept of something being made miksha b'miksha achas, being made from one piece of metal as opposed to multiple pieces and having them screwed together, hammered together after? Question number one. Question number two. Once we understand what the concept of miksha is, why specifically these kalim in the Mishkan? Why were they chosen that they have to be miksha? So he explains as follows. The concept of miksha is making something from one 
piece of metal, and it could be from other items as well. For example, wood. One piece is the most difficult. It's also the most expensive. Very hard to make something from one piece. Start with one piece and carve something out of it. It's much easier to have the arms, the legs, the various pieces, the boards of the table, and make it from multiple pieces and put them together thereafterward. But Despite the fact that it's the hardest way to make something, it's also the most durable and lasting way to make something. And accordingly, these three kalim, difficult, difficult to make, but the re that represents something very significant in that they were made that way. That is question number one, miksha. The most difficult, but the most durable. Question number two, why specifically these three kalim? So he says that there is a common thread uniting these three. Each one is symbolic of an area requiring tremendous effort and unwavering determination to reach a defined goal. And it goes as follows. Let's start with the menorah. The menorah represents Torah, specifically Torah Shabal Peh. Success in Torah learning demands hard work. It demands strong, steadfast commitment, sustained focus, and tremendous hasmada. One cannot sleep the night through and become a Talmud Chacham the next morning. It requires tremendous effort to become a Talmud Chacham. And accordingly, the menorah was made b'mikshaachas. Number two, the chatzotros. Those were the silver trumpets used initially by Moshe Rabbeinu to assemble Kalal Yisrael. They represent leadership. They represent responsibility to guide the community in the proper path. A leader, a manhig, is not a popularity contest. Being a manik, being a leader, is not about making the popular decisions, it's making the right decisions. What is necessary at a given time, and even though it may not be popular with the constituents, a real leader needs to make difficult decisions. And that's why the chatzotros, representing manhigus, representing leadership, had to be made achas. There are difficult decisions that need to be made, and a leader needs to make them. And number three, the kruvim, were the golden cherubs on top of the Aron Kodesh. Their faces represented and resembled those of young children. And this represents a parent's obligation to educate his sons and daughters. Represents educating the children. The kruvim also were b'mikshaachas, indicating that as much as parents love their children and would do anything for them, the parents also must be strong. They need to teach their children right from wrong, and also discipline is necessary on occasion. Excessive pampering is ultimately to the child's detriment, and in the long run, through their hard work, they will form their children into Proving. That is from the Reish Rav in the Drash Vayin. We will post that on the website if you want to find it. An amazing Dvar Torah. So just to build that out a little bit, I was at Shul this past Shabbos, and Dr. Mark Goldenberg told me the following story about one of his children. He says as follows, his son, Evan, was in high school and like most teenagers, had a difficulty getting up early on school days. Lots of children have that issue. 
davening is first tefillah and it's tough to get there on time and it's obviously very difficult for a parent it is really a painful chore to have to wake that child up ideally the child will wake up himself herself but that doesn't always happen in fact we should have a whole headline show on waking children up in the morning so dr goldenberg came up with the following idea how is he going to wake up his son he's going to quote from the beginning of shulchan Aruch, the first halach and shulchan in the English, one should strengthen himself like a lion to get up in the morning for the service of his creator. Day in, day out, waking his son up, quoting that Shulchan Aruch with a smile. If I know Dr. Goldenberg, it was always with a smile, always in a pleasant way. But Yisgaber Ka'ari, the time is to get up like a lion. Let's fast forward a number of years. Evan, happily married, has his first son, and it comes to the bris. The Kriyas Hashem and Dr. Goldberg, the Zaidi, the grandfather of the new baby, is given the keyboard of Kriyas Hashem. And he gets to the part that you have to insert the name, and he leans over to his son Evan, and Evan whispers the name of the child. And Dr. Goldberg, he, he didn't hear it at first. He thought, I don't recognize this name, so it must be wrong. And Evan whispers it again. It's Gabriel Aryeh. Gavriel Aryeh, Dr. Goldberg, is thinking to himself, I don't have a relative. There are no relatives in the family named Gavriel Aryeh. Typically, the Ashkenazic practice is to name after a relative, a good relative that passed away. And uh, Gavriel Aryeh is not a family name. But nonetheless, he continued with the Kriyas Hashem. And at the end, he began to cry uncontrollably. And afterward, people came up and said that was the most emotional baby naming they have ever been to. And they asked, so where's that name from? And he simply responded, I have no clue where that name is from. It's not a family name. I don't know. It must be that Dr. Goldenberg had an amazing premonition because later on at the bris, Evan explained to everyone the origin of the name. He says as follows, I quote, When I was a teenager, my father used to come into my room and wake me up. He would quote the same verse every day to me. So my firstborn son's name comes from the same saying that my father had used to wake me up. Gavriel is from the word Yisgaber, to be strong, and Aryeh from Ari as a lion. And our hope is that our son should get up and face the day like a lion. And now that Evan is a balabais in his own right, he never misses Minion. Emergency, okay, but he never misses Minion three times a day, and he even comes on time. And the message is that a parent has to put in the efforts. It's hard work. Sometimes we see an impact. Sometimes we don't. With Evan Baruch Hashem, a tremendous impact. But sometimes we don't see that impact. But nonetheless, it's incumbent on the parent to make the efforts as much as possible to try to form the prove of that child, to try to form that child into the angel that hopefully that child will grow up to be. Before we go to our guest, let's hear the riddles of the week. (music) 
This week's riddle is from Parshas Yisro. It says, famous pasuk by Yisem Li that we should be special to Hakadosh Baruch Hu. And the question is as follows: This word segula is like the vowels segol, segol, three dots that are equidistant from each other. And the question is as follows: How does that segol represent this segula, this specialness that Klal Yisrael has to Hakadosh Baruch Hu? That is question number one. Question number two: I am interested in other divrei Torah on Parsha that relate to our topic of the day, raising spoiled and unspoiled children. So if you have a Dvar Torah that relates to our topic, I'm interested, please send it in. I didn't find it to be that easy to find, so please send it in. Interesting to see them, and we'll add on a third riddle. The third riddle is as follows in Tanakh. Where do we have a father that did not discipline his child. If you listen to the end of the show, the outro, this will be given away. So hopefully, send your answers in, call in your answers before you listen to the end of the show. Famous father who did not discipline his child or children. If you want to leave a message by phone or dial in by phone to listen, in America, our number is 732-806-8700. In England, it's 44, that's the country code, 33011 Seven zero two five zero, and Eretz Yisrael, it's zero two three seven two zero three zero four. And now let's go and hear from our guests. Joining us now is Rabbi Aryeh Leibowitz. Rabbi Leibowitz is the Mora de Asra base Knesset of North Woodmere. He is also the director of Smichad Reitz. He's actually the person who introduced me to headlines probably about four plus years ago when he interviewed me on a show. And now we are turning the tables and I have the privilege of interviewing him. Rabbi Leibowitz, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. It's uh, it's always a pleasure to hear all the great work you do on headlines, and I do get a lot of nachas from the fact that I introduced you to headlines. You're the responsible party. So, so Rabbi Leibowitz, we're talking about a new topic today, spoiled children, ho- hopefully unspoiled children. Let's take the positive route on this. Exactly. And maybe we'll start with the basics. Uh, I guess some of the spoiling comes when you give too much to kids. So what, what are the minimal or the basic requirements a father or a parent has financial obligations to his children. So uh, the, there are really three levels when it comes to uh, the obligation that a parent has to take care of their children, to uh, support their children. Um, the first level is what's an absolute chiyuv, an early chiyuv, whether it's midaraisa according to most, and per- perhaps a very early midarabanan, to support one's child until they are six years old. Uh, after the age of six, there's another din midarabanan that a parent should continue to support uh, their child until they are an adult. Now, what age uh, is an adult? So in, in general, in halacha, we assume that at bar or bas mitzvah, a child has full responsibility for themselves and they become an adult. But intuitively, uh, one might realize that a 13 or 12-year-old on their own in today's society is not going to get very far. Well, it's a 30, it's 30, years, 30 years old nowadays. 
Yeah, yeah, depending how long they need to learn for, but, uh, but whatever, you know, or uh, finish graduate school or whatever it may be. But that's actually, um, there's, there's basis for that, meaning the, uh, the, the Drisha, the Beishmuel in Simon Ainal, they, they talk about the idea of being at the age where a child can support themselves. And that's, that's how we define an adult. I think Rabbi Misha holds that way in the Tshuva also, that a parent has an obligation to support a child until they could support themselves. Now, support themselves means, to minimal, you know, to to have what they need, to have their necessities. It doesn't mean to be able to take vacations in uh, nice places. It doesn't mean to be able to uh, to eat out at fancy restaurants or at any restaurants, even for that matter. Um, but to support their child until the child is able to support themselves. Now, there's a third level, and that is that even if the child is at an age where they could support themselves, but they simply are unable to support themselves because they are poor. There are always poor people. The Gemara says that Anius is a is is, is something that uh, the Gemara in the first part of the Sachs Basra I think says that Anius is a galgalam skalgal ba'olam that it goes around the whole world and that it, it, you know it's just uh, it's not always predictable which families are going to be wealthy and which families are going to be poor and a family that may have been wealthy in one generation may be poor in the next generation and that's why the Machaber writes in Yeridea that uh, once a child is of an age to support themselves but if they happen to be poor and the father happens to be wealthy, so then there's a mitzvah of tzedakah, and the mitzvah of tzedakah is karav, karav kodem. We always have the mitzvah of tzedakah with, uh, with our relatives first, with those who are closest to us uh, first. Again, a lot of times, um, what a parent will want to do is, is take a child who's able to support themselves and, 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 and but not able to live to the standard that the parents would love to see the child live to, meaning to go to, uh, to Israel for, if they live in America, to go to Israel for Yamim Tovim and to go on ski trips for winter vacation and to do things like that, and the parent will start paying for those things. Now, that is not an obligation. I Meaning, if the parent is able to support themselves, uh, that is not an obligation. There is a din in tzedakah of Devach to give a person uh, what they need to get to their um, the level that they've become accustomed to, but that is certainly not a priority in Sadaka, even for a for for a karov. So uh so so that that's what I would say three levels are. Up until the age of six is like an absolute um probably midaraisa. From the age of six and on until they're at an age where they'd be able to support themselves as a din midrabanan. Once they're at an age that they could support themselves if they are needy, so that it's a mitzvah of tzedakah, like like you'd have any other mitzvah of tzedakah where it takes on a very high priority in, in tzedakah. And then you'd have a kiyum of a deraisa. Yeah. Okay, so, so you mentioned before that the obligation is not to buy extravagances, but really it sounds like basic needs and necessities, uh, roof over the head, basic food, clothing, and the like. Is there anything taken into consideration of uh, the community that you live in or keeping up with the classmates or based on what the father can afford? Or are we just talking about what is necessary in uh, this area for people uh, to get by? So it's it's nuanced, I think, meaning there's no value in uh, or very little value in making sure that your child has everything, you know, every single thing that uh, that some of their classmates have or even that all of their classmates have. But at the same time, sometimes things do become a necessity, meaning, for example, in the previous generation uh, in the United States, I can't speak for, for Israel because, I, uh, unfortunately, I don't live in Israel, but I could speak for, um, you know, for, for certain segments of the United States. Uh, in my 
parents' generation, let's say, and perhaps even in my generation to some degree, summer camp was not a necessity. It was a, it was a luxury. But at a certain point, uh, where it could really have start having a negative impact on the overall chinuch of the child um, to not be able to send to summer camp because he's going to have no friends. He'll have no one to play with, no one to interact with. He'll have nothing to do all day. Parents will be at work all day. So it's possible that that becomes a necessity. I mean, I would, I would uh, argue that there is uh, definitely a key mitzvah of tzedakah to send kids who can't afford to go to camp, to go to, not necessarily to go to the, uh, the high level, you know, $10,000 a summer um, type of, uh, of camps, but to a camp that will provide the kids with, uh, with, uh, with, with uh, proper chinuch, proper summertime, summertime chinuch. So I think it's because those kinds of things can become a necessity. But a brand name, uh, you know, whatever belt or uh, I don't know what uh, is never. I, it's hard to imagine that ever becoming something that would be defined as uh, as a necessity. Right. One of my rabbanim uh, was telling me a story, related story, how there's somewhat of a slippery slope here of what's a necessity and what's not. He asked of Yaakov Kamenetsky if you can deduct personal expenses for computation of mice. Are you allowed to deduct just like the U.S. taxes? You can deduct business expenses, but there's a machlokas in the post scheme if you can deduct personal expenses. So he was discussing this with, with Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky, Rav Adlerstein, who lives here in Ramot now, and uh, Rav Yaakov said, so what are you going to consider a personal expense? How are you going to compute that? And Rabbi Allerstein started explaining, maybe this, maybe that. And, and Rabbi Yaakov says, I remember growing up, uh, we just had one potato for the entire family to split for Shabbos. So that was our necessities. Are galoshes going to be necessities? Or are they not? So in other words, Rav Yaakov was not inclined to permit deducting of expenses because of the change over time. What was a potato was their need back then. It would be, uh, <laughs> we have much more needs nowadays. Yeah, but at the same time, the halach of does, does teach us that there is a psychological reality that the halacha recognizes that if a person is accustomed to certain things and grows up in a culture with certain things, that those things become, they become a necessity. Meaning, I think psychologically, they say they've done studies of, uh, you know, if 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 I were to to uh, say, how much would you pay for this coffee mug? So a person might say, I'd pay a dollar for that. Maybe I'd pay two dollars for that. If I were to gift it to you and say, here's two dollars, can I have the coffee mug? You would never sell it back to me. You demand five dollars. Now it's worth the same, but once you've had it, to to give it up is 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 much much harder. Meaning, there's a, I think um, my friend of of uh, Daniel Feldman Shlita, one of the Russian yeshiva in uh, yeshiva university writes about this uh, phenomenon that's uh it's, it's chazal recognizing a real psychological reality right absolutely so we've talked about the the minimum requirements on on a parent to support the children are there maximum caps is there a cap for example a limitation on what a parent should not spend i don't know of any uh of any limit in terms of what a parent can give to a child but of course you know because i'll have an expression that uh if, a, if the if the uh if a parent uh puts a child in front of all sorts of temptations and uh and 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 hangs around his neck a wallet full of money so my yasa 
Obviously, he's going to use that money to indulge in all sorts of forbidden temptations. So a person always has to be mindful of what kind of impact is this going to have on my child? Is it just going to make their lives happier, more comfortable? Is it going to be something that's beneficial to them or something that is harmful to their to their overall ruchnius? How frequently should I be indulging them in, uh, in, in the extras? If I indulge them all the time in the extras, then the extras become the necessities and it's not, it's, it becomes impossible to reward a child. I was talking to a father recently who started learning Mishnayis with his uh, with his children, and he said, you know, he, he knew that I, I made siyumim uh, with each of my children at their bar mitzvahs on on, on Shish Sidri Mishnah. So he asked, how, how did you uh, how did you convince them at such a young age to learn? Like, is bribing appropriate to, to learn with, uh, with 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 young children? So of course, bribing is appropriate. I mean, forget about young children. Of nothing's feet used to bribe the bachrim in the mirror. To, to, to finish Masechlis or whatever, he paid them money. But but the guy said, he, he, living in the five towns, he said, um, I, I don't know if I could afford the kinds of bribes that they would that they would require. I, I said, I, I, I don't know. When when I was learning my children, what was the bribe? Was that when we'd finish uh, Masechta, we'd get a ninety nine cent Slurpee at Seven Eleven, you know? Or uh, when we finish uh, Seder. Uh, we'd go and uh, you know we'd go out and get a hamburger together or something like that. You know, it was the bribe was really more with it was really more about just spending time together. You know, with 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 uh, with a parent, you know, all by yourself without the other children around and having the attention. I felt that that was much more what they what the children ended up looking forward to than the actual you know slurpee that uh, that they never finished anyway. There's certainly been a lot of inflation in those areas. No question. Yes, it seems that way. It seems that in way. all areas, but especially that that area. So, so Rabbi Leibowitz, you have dealt with literally thousands of children. You taught high school for a number of years. You deal with uh, Bachrim. You deal in camps. What would you say if you if you uh, can think back over those that uh, popped out as being spoiled? Is there a, a thing that you could you put your finger on that you could say what causes a child to be spoiled? Yeah. I, I don't think it necessarily correlates 100% to, to wealth, meaning there could be very, very wealthy families uh, that can raise very healthy children and people who have children who have a healthy attitude toward um, indulgence and toward, uh, you know, how do we define spoiled? Spoiled is a child who doesn't react well to being told no, doesn't react well to setback, throws a, a tantrum every time, things of that nature. And tantrum can mean different things at the age of three and at the age of 30. 13, at the age of 18, um, but but we get a general sense of of, uh, of what that means. So I, I would say it, it's more about whether the child has a sense of uh, living within the confines of reality and responsibilities, meaning I've seen kids where, like, if they tell their parents, I need a break, I just need to fly somewhere for the for a couple of days, that they'll just take them away somewhere, uh, in, and they'll miss school for three days in a row, and it's like, and the school's like, where are they? And they say, oh, the kid just needed a break. So I would say that it doesn't it doesn't always correlate how wealthy the family is. What more often happens is that you have a child who has no sense of limitations, who's clearly never been told no, who has no sense of responsibility. And, and obviously, I'm I'm painting a very black and white kind of picture, but I've seen it. I've seen kids where the parents will just take the kid out in middle of a school week just because stam there's a cool trip to be uh, to be had or to be taken to some exotic location 
you for a few days. Um, you know, the kids, how could the kid not follow his favorite football team on their playoff run, on their playoff quest? So if that means flying out to Los Angeles to uh, to go to a football football game and missing yeshiva on Sunday and Monday uh, because of that, because of that trip. Yeah. But, you know, that, that's what you got to do, because that's what meaning that those kinds of things are what really makes for a spoiled child. What makes for a more healthy child is a child who's taught to or who, who, who learns how to think more outside of themselves, who's able to see things from other people's perspectives, who when the parents want to do an activity with them, the parents take them on their Tom Shabbos run, um, you know, where, where the parents uh, send the child, let's say, to a camp. You mentioned that I spent time in a camp in the summer. Camp I, I happen to spend time in is Camp Kaylee, w- w- which is run by Ohel. And the idea of the camp, the concept of the camp, is that they uh, they, they take uh, special needs children, uh, children that have special needs and children that have uh, regular needs, and they put them together in the same bunks, same activities, same everything, not just on the same campus, but constantly interacting. And it has a greater impact on the uh, what we would call the, the, the regular needs children, um, although as my friend from Judah Michelle likes to say, we all have special needs. We all have a lot of uh, a lot of needs and we all have, but it, it has a greater impact on what we would uh, typically refer to as the regular needs children, even than it does on the children that have special needs, because they just see that, uh, that, 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 that there's constant opportunity for chesed in this world. There's constant opportunity to be thinking about other people and to, you know, to, to, to be sensitive to, to other people's needs. And regardless of how uh, poor or rich a person is, that ultimately is going to determine whether, uh, whether they have the, the proper attitude toward things and toward uh, filling their every desire. Okay, interesting. Just to take a step back, does the Torah give us any guidance as to how we should raise our children, uh, how we should discipline them? Should we not discipline them, uh, spoil them, not spoil them? What, what are the, uh, in Tanakh, in, 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 in Chazal, do we see guidance? There must be guidance. So what, what do we see there? Yeah, I mean, we definitely have in uh, in in Tanakh and Chazal of Chanoch and al Pidarko and to uh, and to, uh, to to punish when punishments need to be, you know, when that's what works. Chazal speak about this question is uh, whether the methods of punishment suggested by Chazal um, would still apply in the exact same way nowadays. I'd rather that could be a separate show that you could have about uh, maybe you have already. I don't remember about uh, you know about the proper way to punish a child when they do when they misbehave when they do. Something something wrong. Um, but I think just more broadly, uh, the the fundamental obligation of Chinuch involves two elements to it. One element is just to teach a child to do mitzvahs, that a child has to learn how to put on tefillin if they're going to be putting on tefillin every day. They have to learn how to shake a lulav if they're going to shake a lulav every year. But then there's a more um, fundamental and broad obligation of Chinuch, and that is the obligation to be mechanich, a child, to generally be an Eved Hashem, to just generally have the proper midos through which they will be able to serve Hashem, uh, to teach a child the midos and necessary empathy, and to not overindulge on on material things. And that that's something that uh, you know that that is that that's really the fundamental obligation of chinuch, and that's you know misavara. One one would realize that uh, that that's a parent's obligation to 
uh, to teach a child. Okay, so so let, let's talk about then the uh, Kiburava M aspects of this. We've talked about the obligation of the parents towards the children and support and the like. When you have a spoiled child, and oftentimes you're giving, giving, you mentioned uh, a child that needs a break. I need a vacation and fly away for three days to a ski trip or whatever uh, sports game it is. And uh, at a certain point, the child starts asking uh, parents, can I do this? Or I want to do this. Or please pick me up at the store, run an errand for me, uh, buy me a car, whatever the case may be. I remember seeing a Shaila poster of Zilberstein once. Uh, somebody was concerned he was going to send in a letter and put it in a, in a, send it through the mail. And his father was the mailman. That would have to deliver it. And is there a kibbutz av and kibbutz av problem of giving that task to the father? Because he'd be sending it through the mail and the father's winding up schlepping the package or whatever it was. So do we have that same issue when it comes to uh, parents taking care of a child and, and a child asks, can you pick me up a pair of shoes or uh, whatever it may be? Is there a problem of kibbutz av causing the parents to, to labor or spend time on behalf of the children? I think most Jewish parents love to give to their children. Um, I think that's not the challenge. The challenge is they hate saying no to their children. <laughs> so it's, it's very hard to uh, I mean the halach is that whether that's an independent halacha or it's just based on the principle of um, that the very definition of kavod of, of a person is what they personally define as, as kavod. Uh, I mean that could be a discussion for a different time but in, in either way, however you want to understand it, if a parent is mochel on the kavod, then the kavod is machel. And parents love to give to give to their children. The harder part is for parents to say no to their children. Now, it is it, there's nothing wrong uh, with a child who does not have their own independent mode of transportation to ask a parent to drive them to a friend's house or to drive them to uh, you know to school or to uh, you know an extracurricular activity or uh, to the base madrash or wherever it is that they that they need to. Go now. The 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 uh, the parent has to be able to, and the child has to be able to be receptive. If the parent says, "You know what, I would I would love to do that, but you know, you have to ask me more than three seconds before you leave because I have a busy schedule today also, and you need to be more thoughtful about the fact that I I, I have other things to do in my day, and uh, and I may have a you know I may have already scheduled my day, and this is going to throw the whole thing into disarray. So I I think that. Uh, uh, that uh, children need to be taught to be more thoughtful about that and to, you know, to, to plan ahead. I think in general, just like kids, I think all people, I think it's a part of the human condition, is that we generally don't like things sprung on us last minute. We don't like surprises. Only surprise gifts are good, but uh, most surprises people don't like. Um, even, even a surprise that's not fundamentally you know, uh, problematic or scary, just something that like, it was not something I was planning for. It's just, uh, I always tell Hassanim when I teach Hassanim that uh, you're going to be a little bit late. Uh, you don't, don't, don't uh, have your wife call you and say, where are you? Oh, I forgot to tell you, I'm going to be an hour late. No one likes a surprise like that. I say, I always say like, you know, you're going to come home at the end of a long day um, and uh, your in-laws are, are at your house. You may love your in-laws. You may have the greatest relationship in the world with them, but you'd appreciate a heads up from your wife before beforehand that uh, that your in-laws are, are going to be there that uh, you know and that's fine because people don't like surprises people have a certain vision of how things are going to be so i think it's 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 important to train children that they need to think about 
their parents before they make these uh, these requests and think about what what my parents is going to be doing. You know, uh, Dad, are you busy tomorrow? Um, uh, you know, Dad might say, I'm always busy, but what can I do for you? And the child might say, well, I really need a ride. Oh, okay, so let's figure this out. Um, I think it's part of a parent's responsibility to make sure that a child gets to where he needs to be and, you know, picks up the things that the child needs, but it should be done in, in an appropriate way. So asking is okay, but how it's asked and when it's asked would be the focus. And and how the child reacts to being told that that not right now or uh, or no. Right, absolutely. So last question for you, Rabbi Leibowitz. If someone would come to you, somebody in your shul, somebody anywhere, they see Rabbi Leibowitz walking up the street and uh, they come over to you and say, Rabbi Leibowitz, I need a parenting tip. Give me your best shot at a parenting tip that's going to really help me raise unspoiled children. What would you say? So that that's you know to to say that there's one tip that would like if you do this you know that's going to work is obviously um a, a little bit difficult but I, I would think to do whatever you can to teach empathy and thinking outside of oneself you know it occurred to me we were doing uh kiddushin in dafyomi so the halacha is the gemara says i think on daf hey that if a if a man says to a woman um mukudeshasli into any of those lashon they work as kiddushin, that uh, she's mukudashas. But if a man says to his wife, hareini ba'aleich, hareini isheich, right? So ain't a mukudashas. She's not, she's not mukudashas. So it occurred to me that maybe he shouldn't be married if even when he's being mukudash and isha, he can, he can only think in terms of himself. That it's the, the way he expresses himself is purely about himself. That it's not even hareat, it's hareini. It's about what, what, what this, what this means for me. And you see it a lot of times, by the way, with Hassanim at uh, at Afros and Sheva Brachos, it's they're not used to saying us, and it's all me, me, me. Sometimes even at a Shalom Zachar, which that's when it's really not about him. But uh, you know, when they're, they're just talking in terms of me, 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 me. Um, so I think teaching children from a young age to think outside of themselves. Um, and uh, many children, as I mentioned before, get to experience this in the camp setting, uh, but it should be taught in other settings uh, as well. That that that's got to be the number one. But also, uh, just to add one more, um, to let children know that it's okay not to have everything that everybody else has. I think that's really. I think kids can handle that. I don't think I have a close friend who lives here in the neighborhood um, who he, he grew up in Far Rockaway and most of his friends were in Lawrence. I don't know how much of the listenership knows about the, the neighbors, but at the time, all of his friends were very, very wealthy from very wealthy families. And he was not from a very wealthy family. And uh, all he saw all day were, were kids who had everything they wanted in these huge houses with swimming pools and tennis courts and this. And he, he said that he said to his parents once when they were eating dinner, he's an only child. So he was eating dinner with his parents and he said, Mom, Dad, are we poor? And he said his 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 parent his 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 parents turned to him and said, Do you feel that there are things that you need that you don't have? That's a great response. And and he said, No. You know, and that, that was it. Like he said, that was like the greatest chinuch moment. And he said that was like a guide for him to how to be mechanich his children. You know, and uh, he, you know, he, whether he can afford certain things or not, he raised his children that we don't need everything that we can afford. Very big lesson there. Very big muster there. Thank you so much. Well, Rabbi Leibow, it's always a pleasure speaking with you. I want to thank you so much for joining us. And I look forward to next time. My pleasure. Me too. Thank you.
Joining us now is Dr. David Pelkovitz. Dr. Pelkovitz is one of the outstanding psychologists of our generation. He is a professor of psychology at Azrieli Graduate School of Education and also has a private practice. Some of his areas of expertise include, but are not limited to parenting, child mental health, and transmitting values to our children. Dr. Pelkovitz, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure to be here. Pleasure to talk to you again. Thank you so much. So, Dr. Palkovitz, we have spoken about luxurious living and various topics about wealth in the past. Now we're talking about kids. And one question, fundamental question is, do you need to be wealthy to spoil your kids or can anyone spoil their kids? Yes, I know. And anybody could spoil their kids, especially in this uh, generation where there's a uh, very real kind of um, uh, challenge of having a hard time saying no. And we're already in the probably third or fourth generation of this. This has been going on for a while. goes back to uh, probably to some fundamental changes in parenting that didn't, didn't exist so clearly before. But no, it has nothing to do with how much money you have. You don't have to be wealthy to spoil your child at all. Equal opportunity kind of a challenge in parenting today. Oh, fascinating. So you said it's kind of linked to not saying no. So walk us through. What does that mean? Um, it's um, the, the sort of panu um, derech, you know, um, which is um, in the Haftarah, the, you know, that, uh, that 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 really describes it beautifully. This this um, for quite some time now, parents, you know, just have a very hard time. Uh, facing the tears of their children. It says in Mishle, Yaser bincha kiyeshtikva ve'el hamiso al nashecha. Put limits on your kid. Don't worry about it. And don't pay attention to their yelling and screaming. And then the Medrash on this says, kol hamosif av yisurim albano, the more a father or a parent puts limits on his or her child, mosif haben av alavit. Well, the, the 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 child will love the parent even more. And that may sound like that, like you know, it may sound like some kind of ivory tower kind of theoretical thing. But I can't tell you how many people over 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 the years have told me that um, their 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 children not only were their children happy to have them say no, but later on when they're adults bringing their children to me. I'm already in my fourth generation of seeing people. They will um, tell me, remember I was having that tantrum on the floor of this office? And they'll point to the floor over here, okay? Even then, I was happy they were saying no. So, yeah. So, there's a new phrase that I heard recently. I don't know if it's a new phrase. I heard it recently, was helicopter parent. What does that mean and what are some examples? Yeah, so helicopter parenting um, is very, it's it's very much there now. Uh, I'll illustrate it um, with a, uh, a story uh, that um, I learned a lot from. There was a, um, this time of year, um, there's a lot of uh, in-service training for uh, people who are starting their um, their their in-service at the beginning of the year, you know, uh, that kind of thing. And um, I was um, introduced with the following story. It was about a, a kid who had been a star graduate of his um, of his school, 
like an unbelievably star graduate, number one in his class, um, you know, unbelievable letters, unbelievable uh, everything. And um, it was the time of the year for the bo- for a bonus. And he met with the head, head of the firm. Uh, there were only two people in that class. And was told um, you're 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 online for getting some some like ridiculous amount like a million dollar bonus. You're on you're on you're 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 right on track for that. Just keep doing what you're doing. You're doing the, almost as well as the other kid in your class. But just keep doing what you're doing, and you'll be you'll be fine. So he um, comes to work um, the next day, and uh, security meets him, and all of his stuff is put packed into boxes. And um, he says, um, what's happening? They said, um, the head of the firm is waiting for him and says, you're terminated. He says, what what are you talking about? He said, last night, I got a uh, call on my cell phone from your mother. And she complained to me how you're better than your colleague. And um, how could you dare not, not give the highest bonus to him? And probably totally unfairly, he held him responsible for this. He said, I know this may not be directly your fault, but the fact that this could happen and the fact that you grew up in this kind of environment, I just can't risk having you have anything to do with this place. Security showed him out and he had to find a different specialty. And that's, that's to me, that's the essence of uh, snowplow parenting because you don't want your kids to have to face any kind of uh, any kind of stress. Yeah, you know, we're told by Chazal, "Ain Adam Omed al Torah Elam You can't master Torah without hitting up against some some pressure and some difficulty, which is a key truth in life. So snowplow parenting is basically that style of parenting and. Um, it's a it's a, it's a real issue. It seems to be happening now more than ever. So you're calling it snowplow? Is is that the same thing as helicopter parenting? Hey, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's the same, same thing. Same, same thing. thing. So, so Dr. Bogle, so far what I'm hearing is uh, part of children being spoiled nowadays. It seems to be two independent issues. Number one is parents not saying no, so not having rules, and number two is they are avoiding stress for their, their, they're shielding stress from their children. The parents are taking the bullets. So we have two reasons that we are spoiling kids and not getting them used to having any stress, pain, difficulties, challenges in life. Is that correct? Yeah, that's, that's, that, that's the way I see it. Sort of um, in order for, in order for kids to grow, they have to learn how to face frustration and grow from that frustration and not be protected from it. Right. So the, the spoiled child syndrome, what is that? Is that simply a consequence of what we're talking about? Yeah. I, in other words, I, um, yeah, I, I don't know how um, widely accepted it is, but um, when I talk about it more from an um, academic standpoint, we talk about um, the work of, um, you know, a, a lot of work that's been done on, um, on overindulgence and on um, kids getting spoiled, kids growing up with uh, with with no nose, and um, it's 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 very much um, a, a toxic kind of factor because you can't you can't grow without facing frustration. You can't grow, you know, where you where without um, without the, the growth that comes from the nichshol behem. 
Interesting. So let's talk about the repercussions of raising spoiled children. Let's talk about when they're young. What what are the repercussions? What are parents going to see in children? What are mechanchim going to see in the children if uh, we have this approach of no nos and shielding the stress? Yeah, so there's often, I, I hear this all the time when I go to chinuch conferences, that um, that, that mechanchim are complaining that um, parents call to complain. Kids will now threaten to sue. You know, the kind of chutzpah that you never saw in the past. They threaten to sue. They threaten to uh, to, to basically to take, um, to take their uh, educators to court. There's also, in general, a, a lack of a lack of understanding of that basic, the basic wisdom of you grow through avoiding avoidance. You go through, you grow through confrontation. Um, and um, it's sort of an age-old lesson that we seem to have uh, seem, seem to have lost. I don't think we've permanently lost it. I think there is beginning maybe to be a little bit of a backlash. But um, it's an age-old thing. Interesting. So let's talk about the longer-term repercussions of raising spoiled children, maybe teenage or when they get married or start dating and they're married and they're afterward. Yeah, so some people think that the rise in the divorce rate um, in, in our community is tied to that. It's tied to um, kids who, as young adults, who are married, and then um, they forget the reality of marriage is that it's, um, you know, it's uh, there's a, a lamo benicionos, you know, sort of that you don't want to marry somebody who's your clone. You want to marry somebody who's going to push back at you in a loving kind of way. A good spouse is somebody who um, um, you you grow through. My father's all would always talk about the, the reality that there's a, um, I think it was a Gemara in Yavamos, where, where it talks about um, that the Hebrew word Nisuin has embedded in it the word Masa, which obviously could be a burden, but also masa, nevua, something that's transcendent, something that lifts us. And when you have a generation that is not wedded to that reality, it could be a real problem. Uh-huh. And talk to me about work ethic. I was outside of shul and there were two people talking. One is in high tech or biotech, and one is a dentist. And they were lamenting that their employees have no work ethic. One had just uh, had a longtime employee retire after a number of years. And he said, when I'm hiring younger people, I need three people to replace this individual because they can't work. It's just too difficult for them to work the hours and do the functions and tasks that is required. Is that an, is that a, a consequence of this as well? I, I think so. I think so. I, uh, my wife was, um, for many years, was a partner at uh, Prascow Rose, a firm that you're familiar with, uh, more than familiar with. When we would go a couple of times a year to the partner retreats, and um, as a spouse, I'd get invited. And it was always fascinating because they'd spend most of their time complaining about um, how the work ethic is done. You know, that work ethic has, has kind of died. And yet, you know, um, I, I remember I went to um, Tervadas, okay? Um, and I remember, um, you know, we had a pretty crazy um, work schedule. We had um, hours from, you know, early in the morning chakras till after night Seder. You know, we, we would finish our day at about 11. And I remember uh, sitting down and... Um, 
uh, when I when I started the real world, you know, so I started graduate school. So I was um, in this um, what was supposed to be a high pressure graduate school and just pinching myself nonstop. When does the work start? I felt more than prepared to, to do what I was doing. In other words, like it was, it prepared me for everything. Uh, to this day, um, it's it's been a central ingredient, you know, in terms of um, uh, having me ready. Um, when I, I, I still hear, my wife's still working, you know, she's still, I still hear her talking about this, you know, um, not, not in a complaining kind of way. It's just kind of, um, you know, she has this, this amazing kind of um, capacity to be able to uh, really, really, really work, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that, we, that we don't see so much anymore. So so somebody's listening to this podcast and they're saying, I think my kids are spoiled. Or maybe the child is listening and saying, I think I'm spoiled. Is it possible to unspoil a child once they are spoiled? Does it depend on how spoiled does it, they are? Does it depend on the age that that child is? Yeah, I, I think it's always possible to unspoil a child. Um, it's a um, phenomenon where you just need to um, be, com- be comfortable with um, giving them chores, be comfortable from demanding um, in, a, in a gentle way. It can't be with yelling, screaming, and criticism. That'll lead to parent deafness, you know? Um, but um, I, I'll, I'll tell you quickly. Yet I was um, invited to be a speaker somewhere, somewhere in the United States. I don't even. I think it was in, in southern in southern part of the United States. And I was um, asked to speak. It was um, about this issue of kids are kids seem to be spoiled. They they seem to not be. Uh, you know, they they, they 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 don't accept the work that we give them. So. Um, I, I started with a lecture to the parents and the community and to the kids. And I said something along the lines of, you know, something I noticed that at Kiddush, um, kids don't um, help clean up after Kiddush. They just sit back while the uh, janitor cleans up. And I said, you know, maybe one way we could start here in terms of getting a change is maybe, uh, for example... The kids could start uh, doing some of these chores. And I talked about some of the benefits and the research of doing chores. And, and what was amazing to me is the kids loved it. They loved this idea. And when I went outside to start to take my car back to the airport after my uh, time there, um, without being told or without without anything, all of the kids in, in in the community were outside. They had cleaned all the snow off of my car. I didn't ask them. And I think it spoke to it spoke to their sort of liking this. And and um I don't know, there's a real there's a real power to that. Yeah. That's that's interesting. There's a father in the shul that I dove in, in that he has his son. The father's very involved in the shul. He has his son come every day before the son goes off to school. The son is 12 years old and he takes out the garbages and he puts out new paper towels in the holders every morning. And I think it's the most amazing thing. I think he's really preparing him for life just by doing those few minutes of tasks on a daily basis. Yeah, yeah. And especially when you could ritualize that, when you could build it into a ritual like that. It, it just, it changes, it, it, it not only changes it, but again, kids, and I see that 
come to life, you know, on a regular basis. Uh-huh. So we, we've been talking about a kid, child, student being spoiled or not spoiled. That sounds pretty binary, but obviously like everything else in life and especially in psychology and people, there's a spectrum. So what would you say falls into the normal kid stuff of wanting things? That's human nature. And when does that normal go into the spoiled danger zone? Yeah. So when does it become pathological? And I think I think that any time there's a pattern that's marked by a kid, you know, chronically not pushing himself or herself, they're just kind of having a Magilly approach to life. That could be crippling. Doesn't you know? You, you won't be prepared for marriage in the in the in the you know proper kind of way, and you're not going to be prepared for life. Um, this is so predictive. I think of ultimate success in life. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I think this is really the nice thing about this is I think it's so reversible. So it's an attitude. It's, it's not a child wants pizza, doesn't get it, throws a tantrum once or twice. It's, it's more of an attitude of the person, Magili, and uh, that's how it is. Yeah, and it's, it's an attitude that can really cost you know, it could cost in so many ways. You know, just a picture of the toll it takes on relationships, the toll it takes on workplace. And to me, there's nothing quite as sad as not reaching your potential. I, I, one more question for you. Good to go back to a point you mentioned, and I didn't ask about it, that the child-parent relationship has changed. And I'd love to find out what changed. What changed and, and uh, what does it look like nowadays? Okay, now I think there's a... Um, there's a fundamental change in parents and in, in, in general society's ability to um, to not coddle their children. You know, um, it's it's such an important agent of growth, um, and that seems to have fundamentally changed. Again, it's that panudera, you know, uh, constant kind of um, paving paving the way and not recognizing that um, we really need to. We really need to see that as the key to our child's um, our child's success in the workplace, in relationships, and in in every important area of life. You know, and and by the way, I see it improving. I I, I think it's very changeable. And what brought on that change initially? I think it's a combination of um, parents who are um, who who have come of age. At a time that um, your job is always to protect your kid from um, from being challenged, you know um, that's just that's just your job, you know. And that that started with Doctor Spock, you know, and um, it continues to this day. Right, right. Doctor Pokos, let, let me mention a, a mission really on point to what you're saying. It's a mission edius parakei. Mission above it actually goes on for quite a while, and it talks about a kaviyabim and a halala. And he used to hold by four piskei halacha that the chachamim of that generation did not agree with. They really were against him, and they actually offered him to have a very significant role in Klal Yisrael if uh, if he would give up those four piskei halacha because he's one of the gedolei ador. He was the gedol ador. And he says, no, they, they said, we'll make you the Av Basin. We'll make you the Av Basin if you uh, forego your peace, Kelach, in those four areas. And he said, I'd rather be called a fool for my life 
rather than to be to be an evil person in front of a Kaddish Baruch because I don't hold those views so I'm not going to get and they're going to think that I just gave it up to get to get a title to get a position so he didn't he said no now at the at the end of it this is the next Mishnah when he uh, so he tells his son he's about to pass away he says those four things that I held by you don't hold by them don't hold by them that was for me not for you so the son said why so, so he explains why. For me, I heard it from a rabbim, so I was going by the rabbim, but all the chachamim are against me on this, so you have to listen to them. So the son was concerned that the chachamim would hold it against him. After his father passes away, they would hold it against him because he, he, he was the son of this person that didn't adhere to their desires. So the son says to his father, he says, do you mind speaking with your friends before you pass away? Obviously, speak with your friends so they'll accept me. Do me that favor. So Amar lo Abba b'kolalachalachaviracha. Go speak with your friends, and hopefully they'll accept me. Amar lo. So 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 he says. He responds. The father responds back. Akavia says back to his son, "Aini mefaked." I'm not going to speak with them. I'm not going to speak with them on your behalf. So the son responds. Responds. Shema avla matasabi. Did you find something wrong? Is there a flaw in me that you're not willing to speak to your friends about me so they'll accept me? And this is the key phrase. Akavia says back. There's no flaw in you, but your own deeds will bring you close to Chachamim if you deserve it, and your own deeds will distance you from them as well. Such powerful language. You got to do it yourself, says Atavia. You'll make it on your own. Beautiful. Yeah, yeah. You have to, you have to own it. Yeah. It, it, it um, you know, reminds me of something that I think we've talked about in the past. That gets to the essence of this, you know, that um, there are free people, F-R-E-E, who have the spirit of a slave. And there are some slaves who have a uh, spirit filled with um, with freedom. And then it goes on to say, Hanemon Ben somebody who's um, faithful to their inner essence is always going to be a free person. Somebody who's only interested in what do other people think, whoever, will always be a slave. And to me, that's in a way at the heart of this. That that beautiful that beautiful thought. It's it's really at the essence. So we want to raise our children to have that that sense of internalization and that sense of ownership. Okay, and then they'll always be free, and they'll always be um, you know they'll always be exactly like that 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 uh, you know beautiful uh, explanation of that. Uh, the mission, uh, mission, the mission yeah. you just said, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, Dr. Pelkowitz, I want to thank you so much. So many important lessons we've learned, and uh, I'm a Kabel, and uh, hopefully, many people will benefit tremendously from hearing this podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, as always. I uh, I, I learn so much more than uh, than than whatever I might give. So, thank you. Joining us now is Mrs. Elisheva Liss. Mrs. Liss is a licensed psychotherapist. She deals with marriage and family therapy, treating individuals and couples. She has actually written on our topic of uh, spoiled or unspoiled children. It's available, all of her writings, on elishevaliss.com. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Let's start out with a definition, probably a very important definition for our entire conversation how do you define spoiled? If we're talking about a spoiled child, what's the definition of spoiled? How do you see it in a person that the person is spoiled? 
Okay. So I don't know of a spoiled child or a spoiled young adult, adult for that matter, to be something that's a clinical designation, but, you know, just on a sort of individual level, the way I would look at it is um, someone who's been overindulged in certain ways to their own detriment. So um, I think that there are a few components that we could look at, right? So um, if a child, I, I think the way that this had come up originally in that article that you referenced was somebody was talking about if I, if this person is blessed financially and they want to give their children a privileged life, how can they avoid raising children who are spoiled? Because I think for a lot of people, they conflate or they equate um, being financially privileged or having a lot with being spoiled. And I think obviously there's going to be some overlap there, but it's not necessarily the case. I think people who don't necessarily have a lot to give their children materially could absolutely be at risk of spoiling their kids. And just because you give their ki your kids a lot, you know, materially doesn't necessarily mean they're being spoiled. So I think it's worthwhile to kind of zoom in on the difference between, let's say, being, you know, blessed versus being spoiled. Um, so the first one I think would be um, a kid who has not been given boundaries or limitations, a kid who's not able to accept no for an answer um, and develops a certain um, intoler uh, intolerance for hearing no or not getting what they want for getting that gratification or the ability to delay gratification. But that's going to um, be independent on financial abilities of, of the parents because you could I always... would think so. I would think so. Meaning if you're a parent who has a, that inclination, you have that personality where you don't like to say no to your child and you can afford to do more, meaning some parents might want to spoil their children, but they're just, they have built-in limitations. They have to get to work or they can't afford to do that thing or they have, right? So they're, they're going to be able to do less spoiling by their own means. Um, but I, I think, yeah, you know, I, I think that you can, you can be very limited, you know, monetarily and still let's say give in every time your kid wants to, you know, stay up late or, you know, have something that they don't want to have, even if it's not expensive or go someplace that you weren't planning to take them, um, you know, take away a toy from another child. You know, these aren't necessarily, you know, things that are contingent on having a lot of money. They're just, you know, being able to set boundaries, set limits, saying we're not going to do that now. That's not healthy. That's not safe. That's not kind. That's not, you know, halasically allowed. Out, you know, there's sometimes you just have to like kind of say no to a kid um, and not being and not having the financial means for something is only one reason that we need to say no to a child. Right. OK, so that that was point number one. I cut you off. So point number two. Sure. Um, OK, so that's that's one. Um, another one is um, I think that if the adult in the child's life um, attribute a tremendous amount of importance to things or having your way or status or money or, you know, superiority about, about, you know, material things. That will be another way that will give the child that sense of like, I'm better than, or we need those things in order to feel good about ourselves. So that would be another way of spoiling children. Um, another way is if the material gifts that a person gives their kids are used as a replacement for authentic connection. So um, the other day I was in an office and there was this uh, woman and her little kid and the kid was kind of jumping around. It was a boring office waiting for an appointment and kept giving her kid the phone to play with and to watch, which, you know, I'm not going to judge that. I know it's really hard when you have a little kid waiting in a waiting room. But, you know, I, I was thinking it probably would have been so nice for like the parent to be able to engage with the child, tell them a story, play the game with them. You know, like that could have been, you know, nice parent-child bonding time. Again, you can't always make parent-child bonding but um, when that's like an ongoing thing where you just give your child toys and candy and things as like a pacifier instead of emotional attention, that's another way that kids get spoiled because instead of giving them what they really need, which is, you know, kind of real authentic connection, love, education, chinuch, um, the stuff that, you know, kind of nourishes them properly, you're just kind of giving them another toy, another treat, another privilege. Um, that That's another way that I think kids can get spoiled. Okay, so what I'm hearing is Having wealth and giving luxuries to kids can exacerbate issues, but they are not causing the issues. They could cause the issues, 
But there are many other ways that a kid can be spoiled independent of material wealth. I think so. Yes. Yes. Okay. So, so that begs the question, should we on occasion, even if we could say yes to certain things, should we just be saying no on occasion so a child gets used to having hearing a no? It could be staying up late or going out or receiving pizza even, something as simple as that, but just exercising the no word on occasion so the child can get used to it in order to use that as a method to not spoiling a child. So I do think there is a value in making sure that our kids are not getting used to a constant flow of immediate gratification. I don't know if I would go as far as to say, like, just say no every so often, even if there's absolutely no need to say no to a completely innocuous request, just because like kids should learn that they don't always get what they want. Because I think there are plenty of times where kids aren't getting what they want and they might not be being spoiled about it. They might not be being bratty about it. So like you might wake a kid to go to school and the kid's like, oh, I'm so tired. I don't want to get up. And they get up anyway. And it's like, okay, they just got the no. Well, you didn't have to say no. They would have liked to, you know, so sometimes a kid is just a great kid and they're not giving you a hard time, but they're, they're learning to um, delay gratification or do something that's not necessarily what they want to do. So I don't know that we have to go out, you know, on purpose and just like kind of make life more difficult than it needs to be. Um, but that being said, I think we need to really tune into our children and start to notice if they're becoming the kind of people who, you know, when my kids were little, there was this adorable book that we had. It was it was like a picture book and it was titled, I just don't like the sound of the word no. And it was about this little kid who threw a tantrum every time he or she, I don't remember if it was a boy or a girl, but heard the word no. It's a very cute story of how like unpleasant it is to deal with someone who freaks out every time they get a no. So if you find that you're having a child or a teenager who's really not doing well with boundaries, with limits, with, hey, we can't do that, um, then then you might want to look for opportunities to teach them how to be more resilient to not getting what they want. Um, but all in all, I think when you're leading a values-based life, there are so many opportunities for teaching those limits without actually needing to use the word no. So for example, something that I'll sometimes do with kids, especially parents who have headstrong children, so let's say a kid says, can we go to the park? I want to go to the park or whatever. So instead of saying, no, we're not going to the park, which obviously the kid's going to be really disappointed. I don't know about you. I'm an adult. I don't like hearing the word no in my face, you know, without any kind of softening. So what, what sometimes we can say is no without no saying like, you want to go to the park? Yeah, the park is so much fun. Today is not a great day to go to the park, but we're going to go to the park on Shabbos. That'll be really fun. Right. And so that what there, what we're doing is we're giving the kid a little dose of empathy. We're acknowledging and validating that the request is actually a totally fine request. And we understand why they're making it. Um, and we're teaching them to deliver like, yeah, the park is not for today. It's going to be for another day. So to me, that counts as a no in the sense of not spoiling the child, but it doesn't have to be like that harsh two-letter word that you're shoving in their face. So so number one, I don't think it has to be the word no. Um, <laughs> and number two, like I said, like there are, some, there are enough things that are just not practical. There isn't time for them. They're, they're let's say, against halafa. It's just not really going to happen. That I don't know that we need to like start creating new opportunities for no. That being said, if a parent or a family is noticing that they've gotten in the habit of being a little too indulgent, a little too permissive, and they want to dial it back a little and for only for the reason that they feel like their kids are starting to act a little entitled, then that might be, you know, on an individual basis, not a bad idea. Okay. Now to go back to a phrase that you said, values based life, it's a very interesting phrase. And, and you use that to say that you may not want to say no explicitly, but explain based on the values, based on the yeah. values we can ex explain a no. So so based on that concept, obviously, we want to treat values to our children. So in, in this area of trying to raise unspoiled children, especially in a spoiled world, what are the messages or the values either explicitly or maybe sublimely that parents can send in the way of the children, particularly in specific, 
pointing in this area of trying to train them. I don't know if that's a proper word to train them to be unspoiled. Yeah. So there are two things that I could think of in the realm of values, you know, religious values, spiritual values that come to mind right away as far as that. One of them is kind of um, in, intrapersonal within the self and one is interpersonal. So the intrapersonal within the self would be gratitude. So um, I remember once when uh, my daughter was younger, she had to read this book for school. I think it was called something like I Will Always Write Back. And it was this like really nice story. It was a true story about a kid who ended up as a pen pal with another child from um, a, a developing country and um, how this American kid was exposed to like the kind of poverty that she really would not have likely encountered anywhere in her, you know, charmed life. And um, my daughter, who was, you know, sensitive kid, was she was feeling really guilty because we had gone shopping for, you know, camp stuff. And she was just like, I feel like so bad reading about a teenager who's like sleeping on the dirt floor of, a you know, in, in this time and, and being able to buy such nice things so I can go to camp. And I said, you know, I think that it's important to try to shift from guilt into gratitude. You know, feeling bad about what we have is not going to do anything for the world. I think recognizing and appreciating that, you know, like, thank God we have food, we have beds, we have toys, we have nice things in our lives, you know, is, it allows us to spiritualize and sublimate what that is. Thank Hashem for it. Be grateful to our parents and whoever else we're getting it from um, and be able to share. And then we move to the interpersonal, which is to say, um, you know, if I have and I'm, you know, privileged in that way. And thank God, you know, most of us are in some way or another say, okay, so if I have this, what can I do with it? How can I use what I've been given to share, to make the world a better place, to improve my own needos, to do for other people, um, you know, taking time and resources to, you know, to be contributive. So, so two points then. Number one was hakarasatov about it. That's more of an internal feeling. That's an internal value system. And next was how I use it to benefit others. So that's more of a Becoming a giver. Yeah. Being, being a giver, a doer, you know, so if you have a kid who all their extracurricular activities are, you know, kind of like sports and creative, and those are wonderful things. But like, you know, I think a lot of that here in, in New York, a lot of the high schools have like a chesed requirement. And I think that's lovely. A lot of people are against that. They're like, oh, you shouldn't institutionalize chesed. I'm like, it's fine. Institutionalize chesed. You know, like, it's, I don't think that's a bad thing. You know, if people want to do extra credit chesed on their own quietly, good for them. But like, you know, the way we educate people to do a good thing is that we, you know, we we promote it. And I think that's wonderful. Even if it's shalolishma, so it should be balishma. So that's, uh, that's, uh, that's most of what we train kids to do is shalolishma at the beginning. Most kids are not doing their homework lishma, you know, <laughs> they do what they have to do because, you know, they want to just, you know, they, because they have to do it and that's okay. Right. Absolutely. So uh, let's talk about the the parent-child relationships. We talked about teaching values and maybe on occasion uh, saying no when necessary in in, in a more uh, value-based way. Where does the parent-child relationship play in here? Do we, uh, if we have a stronger relationship with them, if they respect us more, are they going to be more inclined to be accepting these values or is that, is not, not relevant or I I would think it's relevant to everything in life. Uh, But if if that's the case, what should that relationship look like? Because I remember decades ago, it used to be discipline your child and then it became be your child's friend. And I don't know what the status of the union is right now, but I think it got a little bit away from just being your best friend of your child. So if we want to treat, treat these, uh, teach these values and uh, have an unspoiled child, what should that relationship look like? 
So the uh, sort of Hegelian, you know, pendulum from you know one extreme to the other, and sort of the, uh, the you know the middle, the middle, um, you know, Darasam and Mutsa kind of thing. And the most that authoritarian parenting was considered like the overly harsh parenting, um, and then overly permissive parenting is the like be your child's buddy, which obviously is not going to be great either because kids need parents, they need people who are hierarchical in their lives. And I think that the word for the more moderate approach to parenting, you know, where you give loving boundaries to children, is uh, authoritative. Um, that might be. A little outdated. They change the, uh, the the language every so often. But I think the gist of it is like with everything in life, we don't want to be too far to either extreme. You know, parents who instill too much fear in their children, you know, in Hakaptan Milamade, I think, you know, and and parents who um, are, are all about just kind of like the love and the fun are not going to really have the leverage to teach their children to become, you know, good people. Um, and, and so I, I think, yeah, I think investing in that loving relationship where we're modeling and we're teaching and we're, you know, kind of educating our, not kind of, we're educating our children to be, um, you know, Shomri Torum, it's those people who value um, halacha and morality and goodness and personal development and humility and the capacity to say no to ourselves and to say no to others when necessary and to say yes when appropriate. I think those are really important life skills to, you know, to be modeling for our children. And when I say modeling, I mean, not just educating, you know, do as I say, not as I do. But I think that, um, you know, very often I had a friend who I, I have a friend um, who grew up in a uh, in a very wealthy home. And she genuinely until said, she until she hears this show. Pardon? Until she, no, no, no. This is this is complimentary of her. So, <laughs> um, and uh, and she grew up in a very wealthy home, and her family very, very giving, very facet oriented. So middle school, like I think seventh, eighth grade, some kid in her class like made a joke about her being rich, and she came home and she's like, "Someone call me rich? Isn't that so weird?" And her parents are like, "Well, yeah, no, we're actually wealthy." <laughs> And like, she really was clueless about it because that just wasn't what her family was about. And this is a family with like names on buildings, but like that just is not their identity, um, you know? And and so what she had internalized and to this day has internalized is that like, we're here to do for other people. Like we're here to give and do and be the best, you know, Jews and Ovdi Hashem that we can be. And that the fact that her family happened to be blessed financially, which is like, oh, okay. So these are the tools that Hashem happened to have given my parents, grandparents, whatever, with which to fulfill their tough kids. So we get to do, you know, chesed in a slightly more or or the slightly more abundant way than your average person, but it was so not what they were about. So that's a person who grew up having modeled for her the values of what life is really about, you know, independent of the fact that they happen to be wealthy. And they weren't, there are people who are wealthy and make sure to make sure that their children lead very sort of simple lives. That wasn't the case here. They did live in a lovely home and she had nice things, but it wasn't, it just wasn't what they were massive and, and she internalized that. Now, how about the reverse situation? That's that's uh, parents who are doing a very fine job, an excellent job at teaching values, a values-based life. That's the phrase that uh, really is resonating with me. Uh, so if we have the reverse situation, that instead of a girl in school, a boy in school that ha- has more wealth and, and others may not, uh, we have the reverse situation, uh, somebody who doesn't have wealth, or maybe they do have, but the parents are trying to put on limitations and raise an unspoiled child. Uh, what's going to be that impact on that child? And do we have to be concerned as parents that we're sending our child with less? Maybe everyone else has the greatest brand, whatever brand it is nowadays, and we don't want to pay for it or we don't believe in it. We don't think that's going to be the right value to teach our child. And is that going to have a negative impact? Do we have to pay attention to the excesses that the others are having and uh, try not to disadvantage our child emotionally? Or is that something that we can work around. So I think what you're describing is the peer pressure element. Yes. Yes, correct. 
Yeah. So I think like, look, you know, you'll talk to people who will say adults who will say, you know, I'm so grateful that even though everyone around me was, you know, very indulged and spoiled and materialistic, my parents didn't cave to that pressure. And because of that, to this day, I'm hardworking and I can make do with less. And I feel really good about that. You know, you feel, you hear people like that, but I do think that there is a risk to take with that because sometimes it, it backfires. And you, if you're, if you make your kid, that boy or girl, I don't think gender matters in this example, right? If you make your kid, the one in the class who has to go without when everybody has, um, whether it's a thing or an experience, you know, an example I give is sleepaway camp, right? A parent, a, a parent might feel like sleepaway camp is such a waste of money, um, you know, but if everyone else in their class or almost everybody else in their class is going to be away at sleepaway camp and, and come back with shared memories and experiences, then um, it might not, and, and you can afford it. If you can't afford it, it's a different story. But if you could afford to send your kids to sleepaway camp and it's a, you know, it's not a camp that you have a problem with in terms of like the inherent values of the camp, I, I don't know if it's a worthwhile risk to make your kid be at either end of the bell curve, meaning I think think that to have your kid look, someone's got to be the kid in the class who gets the least, right? But I don't know that we want it to be our child. And likewise, on the other side, you know, like if uh, the example that I give is like, if everybody's making their bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah in the shul basement, don't be the one that flies everybody to a vacation destination for the bar bat mitzvah, you know, like, like kind of like live within that, you know, it's almost like a form of sneas, you know, just kind of like, like we don't have to be like an outlier. Now, again, if you can't afford or you have a specific reason why you're ideologically opposed to what other people are doing, that's why I think it's also also an important decision who we choose as our children's peers, like what school we're sending them to, what community, if we have choice of what community you're living in, right? Because we we can't deny that we and our children are affected by the people that we spend time with. So um, yeah, so that 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 would be my feeling on that. I think that ideally we don't want our kids to feel like they're the most deprived, even though, like I said before, there are people who would be like, no, I took pride in the fact that my family was different. Okay, great. If that works for some people, then they they did it right and they got fortunate. But I, I do you do see sometimes people will will rebel against that, and I don't think it's worth it. Right. So that, that's vis-a-vis the peers. And yeah. in other words, you're saying pay attention to what's going on. Be I think aware. we have to. I don't, I, yeah, I don't think we can afford to pretend that we're raising our kids in a vacuum. So let, let's talk about within the family. If there's a family yeah. that is blessed with a number of children and uh, parents typically don't treat all the children the same. That's just how it is. So certain kids have more needs or less needs. It could be time needs or educational needs, or it could be material needs. <laughs> Do you have to pay attention? Should you, you be treating everyone equally? If you get a sweater, she gets a sweater. Um, and if not, because maybe there are different needs, uh, boys, girls, different girls, different ages, whatever. Well, how do you deal with the inevitable, you love him more or you love her more when when one of the kids says that they see somebody else got uh, something fancier? So how, how do you deal with those situations? So first of all, I mean, I, I think just to answer the beginning of the question, it's very clear. We cannot be, you know, playing the even Steven game with our kids. You know, everybody gets glasses because somebody got glasses. That's ridiculous, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> So, uh, you know, that, that, that's not even a realistic goal, even if it was, you know, it would be like the equality equity thing. And it just doesn't work. Um, I, I think that no matter how fairly, and I would put fair in like air quotes, you know, how fairly people try to treat their children, kids are always going to like notice, like if someone got a molecule bigger cookie than the other kid, right. And our job as parents is to not take that too seriously. Um, depending on the personality of our children be like, you're right. I must love him more because like he has an extra chocolate chip in his cookie, <laughs> right. Like we could joke about it with them. You know, if the kid is, is, is really clearly feeling like insecure in the parent child relationship, I would bypass the competitive piece and just find out what's eating that kid. Like meaning, 
think in a moment, kids will say things that we can kind of gloss over, you know, like that it's their job to say things like that. It's our job to take it in stride. But if a kid is consistently feeling, you know, like they're getting the short end of the straw, then I would kind of like zoom in on that child and say, what emotional needs does that child have that maybe aren't being met as well as they could be and invest in my relationship with that child independent of what's going on with the other children. It's not like, oh, I have to match up what everybody has. But if that child is not feeling attended to, like, let me just see, maybe maybe he or she needs a little more TLC, um, you know, so in, in that sense. But also I think another another component that is almost universal is that, you know, when you have, can I hear, hear like many of us do, multiple kids, different ages and and that were born into different points of the family. Like my oldest, my older kids will joke how they grew up in a totally different family than my younger kids did. You know, we just had different, the, the constellation of our lives, the busyness of our lives, the resources that we had at our fingertips, you know, it's just very, very different. And so again, if you're fostering like a, a, a loving, open, honest, growth-oriented, and growth-oriented, by the way, I know this is a little controversial to say, but growth-oriented to me means both ways. So that sometimes like I'll look at something I'm doing with my younger kids and I'll feel like, I wish I had known that when my older kids were younger. And I'll say, by the way, you know, I feel bad if I had learned about that before I would have done that for you. And I'll apologize. It's one of the things we asked Matila for from our older kids, the mistakes that we made when they were younger. Um, and I don't think there's anything terrible about, you know, letting our kids know that. Or sometimes they'll laugh at us and be like, you never would have let us do that at that age. We're like, oh, what do you want? We're tired now, you know? Um, and, you know, we can kind of joke around with them about that. So, yeah, I, I think it's okay to, to be, you know, again, depending on the personalities of the children and where they're up to developmentally and age-wise and our relationships with them to be kind of real with them and say, look, what we did five years ago, eight years ago, 10 years ago, when you were that age was based on, you know, we're all just trying to do the best we can with the knowledge that we have at the point that we have it. So, you know, we were doing that when you were younger. We're doing this now that these kids came along and these kids are different from you and we're different people now. Um, and and I, I think that that's very honest and very real. And we're kind of modeling the progression of who we're becoming that we also hope our children are not going to be the same, you know, 10 years after whatever point it is that they're going to also be growing. Right, right. Very good. That, make, that makes sense. I have one final question that's been on my mind. Um, but he has a spoiled child or multiple spoiled children. And sometimes <laughs> it's easier to give them... Fictitiously, right? What was that? I said fictitiously, right? Oh, yeah, somebody. Not somebody else. Lohai Avalonivra, right? <laughs> It is easier to give the chocolate or the short term, right? Give the pizza, give this, that, fine. I don't have time. I don't want to deal with it. Sure. What's the implication for the longer term? If somebody has a spoiled child and that child will grow up, Mir Tzashem, does that negatively impact that child's work ethic? Will it impact that child? Now a grown up, will it impact his or her marriage? What are the implications for that young spoiled child that is now an adult? So with your permission, I would back it up to the beginning of what you, of your question in terms of, you know, the, the, the developing child. I think I heard this from Rev Leff, who you've had on the show um, a number of times, but I'm not sure. He's, he, I think he had said something many years ago that stuck with me. It would make so much more sense if Hashem gave us our children when we were like in our 60s and collected like a lifetime worth of like knowledge and wisdom and, you know, working on our midos. And like, then we get our babies and be like, okay, now I know what to do. But most of us have our children when we're relatively young and inexperienced we have no, no idea what we're doing. And that's why we have like thousands of opportunities to like make mistakes and correct and get it better and do better. Like we have a lot of interactions with our children. I remember years ago, my oldest kid was best friends with a kid who was the fourth child in his family. And his older siblings were like really, really great kids, very sick, very polite, just really wonderful children. So we were hanging out with the family and I'm like, you know, I'm going to pay attention to how these parents parent because I want to like pick up some tricks and how do you get such nice kids? And this kid who is friends with my kid is maybe like four years old. And he's like pulling on his mom's skirt, like, Mom, Mom, I want a lolly. I want a lolly. Can I have a lolly? And finally, she looks at him. And she goes, "Get out of my face!" Here's a lolly. And I was like, "Okay, I could do that." You know. <laughs> 
And what, what was going on there? She was having a bad moment and she had plenty of bad moments, but she and her husband are amazing people who do a tremendous amount of chesed and invest in their children in a lot of ways. And sometimes they're a little rough around the edges, right? That kid is now in his twenties and he's a tzaddik and a masmid and a very edel, wonderful person, you know? So I, I like to tell that story just because like, it was not her finest moment as a parent, but like parenting is a tapestry of moments. And, you know, not that that is something that we want to endorse, but like, if you're a parent listening to this and you're like, oh, I'm not idealistic like that. I just have these moments where I cave in. Like it, it's, it's not the one action most of the time that, de- that, that determines it's like these repetitive, like Hergel Nasalachava kind of thing that we need to keep in mind. One thing I, I have a lot of, uh, a lot of things that I ask Mechila for my children, but I'm not a perfect parent. But one thing that my, my children who are mostly adults now tell me that we did right. <laughs> um, and I feel good about, it, and I like to share this is that, um, when my kids would say, um, I want this or give me that, or, you know, in, in kind of a demanding way, um, every single time, like probably a hundred percent, maybe 98% of the time, if they would say, you know, I want a drink, I would say, oh, oh, please, mommy, may I have a drink? Sure. <laughs> and then if I would give them the drink and they didn't say thank you, I would say, oh, thank you, mommy. This is delicious. Not how do we ask? Not until you ask nicely. No, we didn't engage in power struggle. We would just edit the sentence every single time. And if they didn't supply the thank you, we would supply the thank you. And you know why I think that works? Like, again, I don't know if it works 100% of the time, but it worked with 100% of my kids. Thank God they're all polite. Um, is that I think it's annoying to be corrected every time. <laughs> so you just learn to like the same way, like kids speak incorrect with, you know, grammatically incorrectly when they're little. And then they they correct because they don't want it to be wrong every time. So that's the correct grammar in our home of please may I have? Oh, thank you. It's wonderful. So, you know, I, I think those are, you know, so to, some good examples of how to model that. Um, to fast forward to the end of the question. Okay. So how does it play out? Let's say a parent did everything wrong and right. And they already spoiled their child. They never made their child take no for an answer. They indulged and gave into every tantrum, every whim, every demand request, whatever. So again, I, you know, children are not only a product of nature and nurture, they're a product of nature, nurture and free will, right? Bahira. So, you know, there are plenty of parents who do everything right and still unfortunately have a lot of service from their kids or ostensibly do a lot of things right and their children might not make the best choices. And there are people who's, who will tell me about their, you know, parent, their parents' parenting. And I'd be like, wow, you have every excuse to be a disaster. And they're wonderful humans because they are self-made. And, you know, so I, I think it's important to remember that not always is a, is a grown child a reflection of parenting. There's other stuff that goes into it, other influences, other experiences, and Bahira. That being said, once a person has become an adult who is very entitled, very indulged, very like, I, it's my way or the highway, those people are very, we all know people who are, who behave that way. It's really hard to get along with them. It's hard in relationships. It's hard at work. It's hard in shul. You know, it's, it's, we want to be and raise the kind of people who make space for other people's needs, thoughts, opinions, desires, wants, preferences, and opinions, you know, and not to the point that we sacrifice our own, you know, values and conviction, but that, you know, there's a humility that there's like, as, as much as there's in on me, 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 right? We teach our, our kids to take care of themselves, take care of their own needs. I'm not going to do things for them that they could do for themselves at, you know, age appropriate points, right? But I, I don't want, we don't want to be ourselves or to raise children who who think that it's all about them. So I think that's always the concern. We don't want to raise kids who are so, or young adults who are so selfish and self-centered that they're not here to give and to serve, you know, whether it's Hashem or other people, the Klal, their their partner, their children. You know, we want people who can have the backbone to take care of themselves and then use that strength to take, you know, to take care of other people as well. So would you say that spoiled children grow up to be spoiled adults? I would say love Dafka. You know, I, I, I think that, you know, as parents, it's good for us to, 
be wary of that because we want to, you know, kind of look at the the little kind of introductory music of what our children are making when they're little and see how we can channel those midos and those cojos and those personality traits into the healthiest versions of themselves. Um, but I think that if you're listening to this and you are a young adult who, or a teenager who feels like, oh man, I was spoiled. I was overindulged. Don't think that, you know, that's not your destiny. You know, you can still work on your midos. We all, you know, we all had imperfect parents. We all are imperfect parents if we're parents, you know, and, and, and I think like, like with anything else. We're affected by our parents' parenting. I think it was Rabbi Dr. Avram Tversky who said this line, um, we are what our parents make us, but it's our own choice if we stay that way, right? So, you know, it's parenting has a tremendous effect on on developing, you know, children, teens, and young adults. But ultimately, we believe that we have to take responsibility for our own choices and midos and and personality traits. And sometimes, like I said before, it doesn't make any sense. You look at parents and be like, how did that kid come from that that set of parents? So yeah, as parents, we want to think that way. You know, it's good for us to think in terms of how our, you know, we row as hanolad, you know, pun intended, you know, how are my parenting choices going to impact and affect my child's identity later in life? But also the kids become who they choose to become, you know, not independent of us, but besides for us. That the Bechira point is a very important point. Relevant for everyone, obviously. I think so, yeah. <laughs> Liz, I want to thank you so much for joining us. Certainly, we've covered a lot of ground, a lot to think about. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Yashika. Joining us now is a young lady we are going to call Leia. Leia is here to speak about spoiled and unspoiled children. And we'd love to get her view. Oftentimes people say we should have uh, people speaking on the show that we're speaking about. So if we're speaking about raising spoiled and unspoiled children, we should have a hopefully unspoiled child join us and discuss it. So Leia, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) It's a pleasure. So Leia, tell me, how old are you firstly? I am 12 years old. Well, and does, does your do your parents know that you're uh, being interviewed by headlines? Yes. Okay, so we have parental consent to have this conversation. Okay, very good. Just for the seabird to know, this is not my daughter. So um, this is a uh, objective interview. So Leia, I'd like to hear from you. You deal, you go to camp? Yeah, I went to sleepboy camp this year. Okay, and you go to school also? Yes, I go to school. Okay, so you see a lot of kids, probably. So have you seen people who are spoiled? Of course. I mean, I have friends who are spoiled. Oh, you do? on me. So So what would you say identifies somebody as being spoiled? If you come in a room and you start schmoozing with somebody, you're in camp with somebody, you're in school with somebody, and uh, is it what they do, what they act, what they say? What would you say identifies them as being spoiled? Well, this is the thing. In order to be spoiled, you have to get a lot of things, any, a lot of things that you want. But what I would consider someone as spoiled is how they act with those things. Because it's not their choice that someone's gifting them all these things. It's their choice how they receive and how they act with those things. Oh, wow. Okay, that's that's really very insightful what you're saying. It's not a matter of just getting things. Because you could have people getting things and they'll behave okay with it. And you'll have people get yeah, things. Like I- I have friends who literally don't talk about anything at all, but like they they get things constantly whenever they want. Like some, one of my friends, like for her boss birthday present, got an iPhone 14, like the newest iPhone. Like ah, that's crazy. She's literally going into seventh grade. Like even to have any type of phone is like ridiculous. But she doesn't even talk about it ever. She just uses it and whatever. Like ah, uh, so she's Tanua. She's really... she's, yeah. she's Tanua about it. Yes. Okay. That's the, so. That's key. That's very important. Okay. So, w- what do you think the problem is with 
raising spoiled children. Like, why would a parent care? Sometimes it's just easier if your kid is acting up or something like that, just give them the candy bar or they just want that latest cell phone, just give it to them and, and you don't have to have the screaming and the complaints and everything. So why, why, why should a parent care? Why is this a problem? Why is this an issue at all? Well, the thing is, when your child grows up, they're just going to be like, oh, I really want this new purse. And I've been growing up that everything I want, I get. So I'm just going to buy it. And then they don't make good decisions with their money. And then they spend it on things that aren't necessary and don't spend on things that are actually important. You think that when somebody is spoiled as a child, they're not going to get out of that when they grow up? They're going to continue being spoiled? Well, if they realize that it's an issue, they have to realize that on themselves and they have to like straighten up and like they have to learn themselves. And there's different ways and different like things that, that they need to change for their own life. So I can't tell you specifically because each person's life is completely different. Uh-huh. So they have to correct themselves, in other words, because they don't have the parents teaching them. Yes. Okay, I understand. So if you were advising a parent to say, um, you know, you should raise unspoiled children, how do you go about doing that? How do you, or when you grow up and you have your own children, how, how do you go about what's your plan, your strategy as to how to raise unspoiled children and not spoiled children? Well, the thing is, just because um, a kid, is, just because you don't want your kid to be spoiled doesn't mean you can't give them anything. You could still give them things that are wants and you, could, you should still give them things that are needs. So you have to find the difference and you have to realize like, oh, you know what, this is something, oh, it's a want, but like, it's okay. Like, you know, like some things that are wants you could still get. Like, you have to realize the difference and like, yeah, there's just like, yeah. <laughs> So there were different things you wants and needs. What, what would you say is a need and what would you say? So let's talk about needs first. What, what are needs? Food, shelter, clothing. The basics. The basics. Yeah. And what would you say are wants? Like new toys or accessories or like extra clothing, extra shoes, like some things like, oh, if you have enough pairs of shoes, you have like five pairs of shoes let's say that's enough for you and you want five more that's like a little ridiculous like uh -huh. so what should a parent do when they are trying to raise kids that are unspoiled okay they should teach their kids the value of money and when they do they're gonna learn how to spend their money what more wisely and then they'll end up being much happier with each little item because they get joy from little things once they realize oh my gosh this is a hundred dollars that's a lot of money and like whatever then they'll realize like oh i'm not just gonna buy this two thousand two thousand dollar purse and i'm just gonna like spend it on things that are more useful and not a two thousand dollar purse is there such a thing as a $2,000 purse? Probably even like a $16,000 purse. It's probably more expensive one, but yeah. Wow. Unbelievable. And and what should a parent do if the uh, the child throws a temper tantrum saying, but I want it, but I want it, but I want it? Well, you could, it depends on what it is. If it's like something that's like, okay, $5 maybe or even less. Like, okay, if they're really like being, if they're really like, fetching about it then okay maybe i'll get it but like sometimes you shouldn't because then your child's gonna realize oh anytime i complain i'm just gonna get what i want so you just i don't know you just have to like figure that out on your own and like be like hmm, should i like really give it should i really give in should i not like i don't know it's really for the parent to know and, and it does really it depends on the item. 
Uh, on the item, it depends on? Yeah, because if it's like a $2,000 purse, then obviously they might not give it to the child. But if it's like a little like toy from like the dollar tree, like, okay, maybe, but like, you know. And does a parent sometimes have to say, I'm not going to be able to get it for you or we can't afford it or something like that? Do they have to say no sometimes? Yeah, I said hearing no is a very good thing because then they're just not going to know what to do with themselves when they're older and they hear the answer no and they're going to be like, I don't know what to do. Like, I've never heard that answer. They're going to fetch, they're going to complain and they need to hear the answer no. Very good. Well, Leah, I want to thank you so much. You have a lot of wisdom and uh, you should have tremendous atzlacha growing up and Amir Tashem, you'll be in the situations that you'll have to make these decisions and they're not easy decisions, obviously, but it's nice to hear a, a young 12-year-old who really has uh, very wise thoughts on this. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Joining us now is Rabbi Beryl Wine. Rabbi Wine is the renowned Rav, historian, speaker, and so much more. Rabbi Wine, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. So, Rabbi Wine, when looking at children, would you say children are more spoiled nowadays than decades ago, whenever it may be? I don't don't like the word spoiled, but uh, children certainly have greater expectations today than they had in my time. The difference of generations is in its expectations. I come from a generation where uh, nobody uh, felt they were entitled to have uh, their own home or their own automobile. And uh, I got a job for $50 a week when I started out as a lawyer. And I thought that if I ever get $100 a week, wow, I'll be on easy street. So uh, today, Everybody expects they have their own home, and everybody expects they have an automobile, and what kind of an automobile, and everyone expects, uh, you know, uh, leisure and vacations, and uh, the standard has risen. So it's not that the children are spoiled, it's the whole society is because of the expectations, but uh, it's very hard to tell your child no. If everyone else has it, everyone else That's expects right. it. It's very hard. On the other hand, uh, even in the wealthiest of societies, there will always be people who don't have. You have to cuss, you have to make that a reality. That uh, how do you live when you don't have? I'm not talking when you don't have what to eat. When you don't have, you can't go on a vacation. You can't go to you know, can't go to Israel three times a year. Can't go to Israel to learn. You can't go to Israel for a seminar. They can't afford it. You have to learn. So uh, that takes training for the child. So if the if, uh, if the child never heard no, then uh, you're not going to win it. So it's uh, you know uh, parenting is a difficult skill. Right. So what's your aid to, to a parent to raise a non-spoiled child? And we can talk about parents that do have wealth or don't have wealth. Either way, we can talk about both of them. The standard of living that they set in their house. So don't necessarily live at the standard you can afford. You should live at the standard that uh, that's good for you, comfortable for you. You don't have to be poor, but... Uh, you know, you don't necessarily need 13 rooms and, and you don't necessarily need a private airplane and you don't necessarily need to, to uh, uh, travel for a month or et cetera. You, you set the standard and you, your children are what they see at home, basically. So you can't preach uh, discipline to children if the parents are undisciplined. 
Right. And, and, and what do you see when a spoiled or expectant children grows up? Do they straighten themselves out or do they? Rarely. A lot of unhappy marriages, a lot of dysfunctional families come just simply from that. So that the, uh, how can I be satisfied with my wife and my children when I'm driving a car that's eight years old? So you're not, see, once you're not satisfied with something, you're not satisfied with anything. If you're in a bad mood, God forbid, and you come home and your wife has prepared the finest supper imaginable and she worked all day on it and you're in a bad mood, you're not going to appreciate the supper and it's not going to end well and it's unfair to her. And that's what happens many times in a marriage. Rabbi Wine, thank you so much once again for joining us. Always a pleasure. We should hear good news. Shalom Aleichem, this is Ari Wasserman taking back the microphone for our recap, lessons learned, and takeaways which we can hopefully incorporate into our lives. Before we get to the specifics of our guests on the show, just on a high level, certainly a number of them agreed that being spoiled is not a function of wealth. It can exasperate things, but somebody can spoil children without wealth. When it comes to Rabbi Leibowitz, a number of important points, but we'll start with two halachic points. Number one, halachically, there's an obligation to support our children, but it is based on needs, not on wants. So not on the children's desires, not on our desires, it's based on needs. However, having said that, point number two, the definition of needs changes by time and place. So something that may have been a desire, a non-necessity in the past decades ago may be a need today. So we have that difference between needs and wants. Something that may have been a want a few decades ago may be a need today. And also another point from Rabbi Leibowitz, advice, how to not spoil the child. Children need to be taught to think of others and not just themselves. If they can think of others, that will go a far way in avoiding their being spoiled. We then went on to speak with Dr. David Pelkovitz, and he told us that there are two issues, two major issues causing kids to be spoiled nowadays. Number one, parents don't have rules and limitations, and children need rules and limitations. So nowadays, parents have a difficulty with that. Obviously, not everyone, but a lot of people have challenges with that. Rules, limitations, that will go a far way to not having spoiled children. And number two, parents don't let kids feel frustration and pain. Frustration, sadness, pain, to certain limitations, it shouldn't be unlimited, but that is necessary for growth. So once again, point number one, parents, to not have spoiled children, rules, limitations are helpful or necessary. And number two, kids should be let to feel frustration and pain. Obviously, it should be in a healthy way, but that is necessary for growth. If we, we could just look in Malachim Aleph, a fascinating pasuk. At the beginning of Malachim Aleph, we have David Amelech having yet another son rebelling against him. This time, it's Adonayah who, who proclaims himself the king, and he excludes Shlomo from participating in the festivities. This is when David Melech was still alive. And the Pasuk says, fascinating, it's fascinating language. So the Pasuk says as follows, that David Melech did not discipline his son Adonayahu his entire life. He never said, why did you do that? Why did you do that? Never disciplined him. Now the language is fascinating because it doesn't say he didn't discipline him. It says, and if you read it in the English, it says he didn't sadden him. 
him. He didn't want to cause him sadness by disciplining him at all, by asking, why did you do this? Why did you do that? So that's a very fascinating usage of language that really plays into what Dr. Belkovich was saying. Parents not having rules and limitations nowadays, but also they don't want their kids to feel sad and frustrated and pain. And that is something that indeed may be necessary for growth of our children and certainly for not having spoiled children. Dr. Belkowitz went on to say that consequences of spoiling or some stories, how bad it could be. We have kids, students threatening to sue their abunim, their teachers. We have a lack of work ethic. We have a general magili, I have things coming to me attitude in society. And uh, he did say that there was a study of children that showed that they want chores. They want to be involved. They want certain rules. And the impact when a child grows up, it could be really detrimental. Being spoiled as a child leads on to having a person, a grown-up, who is still a spoiled child, and it impacts on the person's effectiveness and success in the workplace, relationships, including marriage, and all aspects of life. We then went on to speak with Mrs. Elisheva Liss, who said that there is still a difference between being spoiled and blessed. Somebody can grow up in a wealthy household and not be spoiled, simply be blessed. And accordingly, we have some kids who receive a lot of material items who are good-hearted and unspoiled, while some children who didn't receive so much materially are spoiled. And again, she said that you need to go with the golden rule, with the golden path the Derech HaMitzua, when parenting, not 100% fear and authoritarian rule, but also not 100% being the best friend of your child. We then went on to have unbelievable insights from Leah, the 12-year-old, and she told us that being spoiled is not about getting stuff. It's about how, as a child, how you act when you receive it. As a child, as a kid, it's not your choice to get the items, but it is your choice how you act when you receive them. And then we spoke with Rabbi Wine, a very short interview, but action-packed. And he tells us that he prefers not to use the phrase spoiled, but expectations. Expectations of children, of adults, have changed dramatically. We expect a great home, a car, a luxury vacation, automobiles, etc. The standard of living is much higher and accordingly expectations are much higher. He went on to tell us as well that the standard of living parents set in the home will influence the expectations of the children. And he added on, you can't preach discipline to children if the parents are not disciplined. And when that undisciplined child grows up, it's tough to become unspoiled as an adult. In fact, these concepts are reflected in a Pasuk in Mishlei. Parak Havzayin, Pasuk Havzayin, it says as follows, V'day chalev izim l'lachmecha, l'lechem beisecha v'chaim l'naharosecha. In the English, and let the milk of goats be sufficient for your food and for the food of your household. So not only for you, but also the food of your household. And give life to your maidens, apparently referring to your children. The Gemar and Chulein, Pei Dalet Amoralev, makes a drush on those words, V'chaim l'naharosecha, ten chaim l'naharosecha, give life to to your children, to your maidens. Mikan limda Torah derecheres. From here, the Torah teaches us derecheres how to act. Shelo yilamet adam es beno basar Don't cheat your children, your son, your children to desire and have meat and wine. We should teach them to be able to exist on less because the values we have 
are the values we teach them, and the values we teach them are the values they're going to live by and grow up with. The Marsha explains that even when you're young, or especially when you're young, get accustomed, get used to not having a very high standard of living. We should obviously keep to our needs, and we should have our needs. We should desire to have our needs. We should supply the needs of the children, but don't go overboard. I just want to end off with a quote that was pointed out by my wife from the book Unconditional Parenting by Alfie Cohen, and he says as follows, While it may be possible to spoil kids with too many things, it is impossible to spoil them with too much unconditional love. As one writer put it, the problem with children whom we would describe as spoiled is that they, quote, get too much of what they want and too little of what they need. That's the end of the quote. Therefore, give them affection which they need without limit, without reservations, and without excuse. Pay as much attention to them as you can, regardless of mood or circumstance. Let them know you're delighted to be with them, that you care about them no matter what happens. Thanks so much for listening. Have a wonderful day.